We are continuing our series this morning. Actually, we are concluding our series on relationships this morning with a, with a uh, message called, I Just Want to Be Left Alone. Next week, we're going to start an annual tradition called Glow Stick Sunday. I'm not going to give you any more details of what that entails. You can leave that up to your own imagination. I encourage you to come out for Glow Stick Sunday, though. It's going to be a good time. So invite your friends who are skeptical about church. Invite your family who have never been to church, perhaps. Um, we're going to give them, hopefully, a different impression of what church is about next week with Glow Stick Sunday. Today, our final discussion, I just want to be left alone. It's back, if you remember, about nine weeks ago, we began this series. And I had mentioned early on that we as a humanity were designed and created to function like God functions. That was really why God created us. That was the purpose for which we had, was to function like God functions, which is in love with other people. But of course, we do not do that very well. We do not function like God functions. Something happened that made us function in a skewed way. But God created us for one another. He created us for relationship. He created us to be in loving communities. And when that does not happen, it does horrible things to ourselves, to our relationships, to this world in general. I came across this description of a man's experience in solitary confinement. It read as this, go away, please leave. Dan's voice echoed off the cinder block walls of his four by 10 foot solitary confinement cell. He was on his fourth month of being alone, but he didn't know this. He could no longer differentiate minutes from hours, days from months. The only human human interaction he had was when the guard silently took him to work out, also in isolation, for one hour a week, and when receiving his food through a 2 by 12 inch slit in his door. All he could hear, other than the voices in his head, were the screams of other prisoners locked up in adjacent rooms. He couldn't sleep more than two hours at a time, and usually his sleep only lasted 15 minutes. He usually woke up screaming because of nightmares or hallucinations. He spent most of his time pacing back and forth, counting in his head the number of steps he took. By the time he got to 2,000 steps, his heels were worn down, blistered, and bleeding. When he could no longer walk, he spent his days rocking back and forth and talking with imaginary friends. He could no longer determine what was reality and what was imaginary. He would often suffer from violent panic attacks and beat his head against the wall. He would often then black out, but he never experienced the human interaction from the prison nurses who came to minister to his wounds. They were gone by the time he woke up. Am I alive? He wondered as he pressed his fingers into his cheeks. He honestly wasn't sure. He could no longer feel anything. What have I done to deserve this? I can't do this anymore, he screamed. But the echoes muffled any comprehension of what he said. Now, a lot of people would not wish that reality even on their worst enemies. And yet, self-isolation is a very real implication of the self-reigning heart. I I need you to understand this, that isolation is a real implication of the self-reigning heart. Because at the core of every self-reigning, sinful action and motive is the deep-seated desire to be left alone. Isolation is what so many people choose for themselves every single day because they choose to sin. They choose to reign rather than love. Now, I'm going to let the cat out of the bag and tell you that this conversation today is on hell. Now, a lot of pastors would not even approach this road, let alone venture down it. 
It's too disturbing. It creates too much controversy. It makes too many people feel uncomfortable. And there's no other doctrine or truth in Christianity that I, myself, and so many other people would like to eliminate. But this doctrine has the full support of Scripture. Jesus' own words confirm this doctrine. And so as a pastor that believes in the Word of God, I have two options. I can either, like Thomas Jefferson and Marcy, and I can take my scissors and I can approach my Bible and start cutting out all the verses that I don't like. I can cut out all the verses that make me feel uncomfortable and that I don't want to ever read again. Or I can embrace the Word of God, wrestle with what it says, and come up with some conclusions, respond to them out of conviction. Because I think I would do you, Restoration Church, a great disservice if I only ever spoke on the passages that made you feel good. If we just cut out all those verses that we don't want to hear, I think I would do you a great disservice. These are Jesus' own words, and so we better take them seriously. So with that said, it should be noted and understood that I am not going to address and answer every question that you might have this morning. In fact, you might walk away with far more questions on this topic than you ever realized. And that's really not my intent. I'm going to try to paint for you a biblical picture of hell, and I'm going to use very broad brushstrokes. But if you ever want to discuss the particularities of it, man, I'll be happy to have that conversation as best as I can have that conversation. I'd be happy to have it. So how do you envision it? Let's start there. How do you guys envision it? What will hell be like? Any thoughts? Torture. Separation. No light. Isolation. Desolation. Boredom. Hot. How have the movies described it? Fiery, Fiery brimstone. A what? Gnashing of teeth, weeping, yeah. You know, typically when most people think of hell, they think of fire and burning caverns and brimstone, people locked away in caves. Our images and ideas for hell are usually derived from Hollywood, classical art, and classical literature. How many of you ever read the Divine Comedy going through high school? Dante's The Divine Comedy. It's a classic picture of hell. He espoused that eternal punishment would be synonymous with a particular sin that one committed. Now, a lot of people think that would be a huge party. Hell's going to be this awesome, sweet party because if all we did was live in the sin that we committed on this earth, well, a lot of people are going to like that. But what Dante meant was that, for example, those who were in hell because of lust will be blown around by a strong wind for all eternity because lust like no other thing, has the power to blow one around aimlessly and needlessly. Or the greedy, for instance, those both who hoarded and both those who squandered are set against each other, pushing heavy weights with their chests against one another for all of eternity. This goes on for nine descending levels, by the way. It's interesting commentary on the nature of humanity, perhaps, but it's not very biblical. We think of people standing in street corners with sandwich boards saying, Turn or burn! Repent of your sins, or you will forever have your skin melt off your bones. From all sorts of angles, we are being told what hell is like. All sorts of angles, we are being told. And I want to help us construct a wide biblical view. 
Now, the first challenge that we run up to when addressing a wide biblical view of hell is that the word itself is only mentioned 12 times in Scripture. It's mentioned over the course of four books. It's never even mentioned in the Old Testament, in part because in the Old Testament, everyone who died went to Sheol, or the place of the grave, the place of the dead, the place where dead people go. And so there's no point in reading all 12 verses, because five of them are overlaps of other verses, and so there are only seven unique verses, and they read as follows. Matthew 5.22, But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Matthew 5.29, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Matthew 5.30, and if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Matthew 10.28, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 18, 9. And if your your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Matthew 23, 15. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Matthew 23, 33. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? And James 3, 6, finally. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Now, there are a splattering of other verses that describe hell as being a place of gnashing of teeth and weeping. For instance, Matthew 8, 11 says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, I'll come back to all of these verses in just a few moments. So we have these 12 verses in scripture that reference hell. And from these 12 verses, we have created doctrines, and we have fought wars, and we have ridiculed certain people who do not hold the same perspective that we do. And we have written hundreds of books on this perspective, and there have been a hundred other books written in response to those first hundred that have been written. We condemn others. We ridicule. We shame. We point the finger saying, you are condemned because you do not hold the same perspective on hell that I do. And so when we talk about things like heaven and hell, we get so caught up in these details. Details of of like, will souls really reside there forever? Will souls be annihilated? What will hell be like? What's the duration of hell? And a ton of other questions. And as we focus on these details and we get caught up in the debate, we tend to lose sight of the forest through the trees. We tend to forget about the big picture and what the Word of God is really trying to communicate in regard to hell. We forget that there is a larger story being told, and the challenge and the danger of not looking at the bigger picture is that we trade in the point for the debate. And in the end, it really doesn't help anybody. And so here's the larger picture that I want to try to build a framework out of. The larger picture states that at some point prior to the creation of humanity, 
An angel in the heavenly court rebelled against God because he wanted to take God's place. He wanted God's throne. He wanted God's authority. He wanted God's highest position. And this angel, who we know as the devil, then gathered other like-minded angels, left God's presence, and began wreaking havoc on God's good creation. And it's because of this we are told that God created the realm called hell. Hell wasn't created for humans, in other words. It wasn't created for us. It was created for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25 says, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. God created a world that we would enter into, his own world. The destiny that he created humans to live in forever was his own realm, his own heaven. But depart from me, he continues, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. The point of the passage, in some respects, is to say that those who agree with the devil receive the devil's fate. And so meanwhile, back to the story. God, who is himself the embodiment of love, created humans to be like him. Right? That's kind of the whole premise of the series that we're in. God created humans to be like him, to function like he functions, to live like him in this world. He placed us within this good creation with the authority to co-rule his creation alongside him. We have this co-authority with God. We were created with the full authority to love one another. The authority to love God and to love one another and also likewise to love ourselves. Or in other words, we were created for a purpose. We were created to do something purposefully and intentionally. We were created for a purpose. We were created to represent God and to share in his authority. And so the havoc that Satan is most eager to wreak is on God's prized creation, his humanity. And so he tells Adam and Eve the same lie he told themselves. Why be content with co-ruling? Why be content with this co-authority? Don't you want God's highest position? Don't you want God's throne? Don't you want to sit on his throne and rule over the kingdom yourself? Why be content when the authority can be solely yours? When you can sit on God's throne, when you can be the king It's all about me. It's all about me. It's all about me. It's a self-reigning heart. It's the selfishness. It's all about me. That was the lie that Satan put in Adam and Eve's head. And so as we know, they bought into this lie. And all of a sudden, they could no longer fulfill the role that they were created to fulfill. They could not do what they were created to do. They could not function like they were created to function. Their nature was no longer like God's. Their default was no longer to love one another and to love God, and to love themselves, but their default was now to reign over others. Self-rule, self-authority, self-proclamation, self-gratification, that is now the default. So humanity's purpose was tainted. It's broken. God did not create us to rule over ourselves, but to co-rule in partnering and governing this creation. And so the question is, what do you do with broken things? What is the value in something that doesn't do what it's supposed to do? What do you do with those things that don't function like they're supposed to function? Does anybody know what this is? It's a pool toy. It's a blow-up whale. Somebody took the time, they were probably paid to do so, to design this. And then a company created this 
to function in a particular way, right? That when this thing is full of air, it could give hours of enjoyment to little children in their pools. That was what this was created to do. That was how this was created to function. And a couple of weeks ago, this did just that. I blew it up, and it was full of air, and it gave hours of entertainment to a little boy in our congregation. He was running around beating it against walls. It was great. He was having a blast. And then one day, I walked through the church, and I saw this lying there. And so I started to try to blow it up. But it wouldn't blow up. It no longer did what it was supposed to do. It was broken. There's a hole in it. Probably from beating against the wall for a while. But see, this cannot do what it was intended to do. This cannot do, it cannot function like it was intended to function. And so what do I do with it? I, I have this here. I mean, there are, there are really a thousand things I could do with it. I could hang it on a wall. It's a nice piece of art and a decoration, right? But that's not what it was created to do. It was created to hold air. It was created to give enjoyment to little children as they splashed around in pools. It wasn't created as a wall piece. There are hundreds of things that are created as wall pieces, and this is not one of them. And so what do I do with it? Really, there are only two viable options that I can do with this, right? I could fix it. I know where the hole is. It was uh, every time I blew air into this thing, I, I, got, I got hit right here with my own breath in the side of my face. The hole is right here in its tail. I could take some duct tape or some patchwork and I could patch it up. I could fix it. Or what's my other option? Throw it away. You need to understand that we are all like an inflatable killer whale in the hands of a loving God. And he has two options of what to do with us. He can fix us. He can fix us. Now, we all have this problem, right? And the Bible calls it sin. Sin has done horrible things to our relationships. It's done horrible things to our households. It's done horrible things to the world in general. It's done horrible things to my own heart and my own soul and your own hearts and your own souls. It is what is wrong with the world. It is the source of all decay. It is the source of all death. It is the singular problem with the world. And so in order to fix us, God has taken care of the problem of sin. In order to fix us, he has taken the punishment. He has taken that death. He has taken that decay upon himself. He has died so that we do not have to. God has wiped out every past, present, and future sin. And he has given us a fresh start. He has fixed us. Has anybody ever experienced the fixing of God in your life? That's not, a, that's not a rhetorical question. Who has experienced the fixing of God in their life? Who has, fixed, who has experienced the fixing of God in their marriages and in their households and in their relationships in their own hearts, right? God has fixed us. He has done everything that love could possibly do to fix us. He has provided a way to regain our purpose, to model him, to function like he functions. God has fixed us. But the challenge of being fixed is that the secret lies in dying to that old sinful self. That broken old self, we have to reject that old broken self and we have to long to be fixed. The secret lies in placing our trust in God and his cross and the work that he has done rather than our own self-reigning hearts, our own good works, our own abilities. The secret lies in self-surrender. But the challenge of self-surrender is that it is a personal choice to do so. It is your choice to self-surrender. 
to lay down your arms, to lay down your guns, to say, God, I need you. Fix me. And no one can make you surrender, and you have every right to refuse to surrender. You can say, God, I don't need to be fixed. I don't know what you're talking about. I have nothing to confess. I have no sin that needs to be confessed. I don't know what you're talking about, God. I don't need to be fixed. Billions of people throughout the world have that mentality. There's nothing wrong with them. They don't need fixing. They've done nothing wrong. And if they do do things wrong, they don't care. They don't need to be fixed. They have nothing to confess. Billions of people throughout the world have that mentality. A lot of people would rather live in their self-made kingdom where they declare themselves to be king rather than submit and surrender to another. And a lot of people will hold on to this mentality even while their castle is falling to the ground. A lot of people are so stubborn and prideful and hard-hearted that even if their life is falling down around them, even if they're lying on their deathbed, they still will not surrender. They will not give up their throne. You guys ever experienced that? The hardness of heart in somebody else? Or in your own heart? And a coworker or a neighbor or a family member who just will not give up. They will not humble themselves. They will stay stubborn to the end. Some people are hell-bent, we call them, on getting their way. Some people are hell-bent on making life the way that they want to make it. And they will do anything to anyone in order to make it happen. It's all about me. It's all about me. It's all about me. And so the nature of freedom is that some people will not be redeemed. You guys get that? The nature of freedom is that some people just will not be redeemed. This choice that we have to surrender, some people will not make it. Some people will refuse even to their dying breath to surrender. Love has done everything it possibly could to redeem us, to forgive us. But love is a choice that needs to be made. And it gives us that freedom to reject its salvation. And for those that do not regain their purpose by taking on the Spirit of Jesus Christ and restoring their mind and their soul and their strength, their love into their intended relationship with God, there will come a day when their usefulness wears out. There will come a day when they have pursued worthless things for so long that they are now just considered worthless. There will come a day when the remnant of God's image that breathes in every single human person have shriveled up into nothing that All that God can do with them is to throw them away. Because in some way, hell is God's garbage can. Now in all 12 of those references on hell, the Greek term that is used is Gehenna. My friends, this is Gehenna. Does it look like hell to you guys? This is Gehenna. It's the word that Jesus uses when he references hell. It's a literal place that exists in the world. It's a valley on the southwest side of Jerusalem. All of Jesus' friends knew about it. Everyone who heard Jesus talking knew where Gehenna was and knew what Gehenna was. It's a valley. It's a literal place, a physical place. Gehenna is a conjunction of two Greek words, ge, meaning valley, and hinnom. Hinnom. The valley of hinnom. Gehenna. And so the valley of hinnom... Like I said, it ran along the southwest edge of Jerusalem. It was a literal place with a literal history and a purpose and a reputation. And so whenever Jesus' followers heard of this place, they were quickly reminded of the intense wickedness that took place here. Molech, the wicked god of the Amalekites, 
had his way here as many of the Israelite kings sacrificed their own children to this god in this valley. It eventually became a mass grave for pagan idolaters, criminals, and robbers, and wild animals. All the people that the Israelites wanted to do away with, they threw into this valley. To the Jewish mind, it became the symbol of evil, this valley did. To the Jewish mind, it became the house of the devil, the gateway to the grave. But they wouldn't say that was literal. So much intense evil took place in this valley, so much corruption, so much horror took place in this valley that they started to say, that is the gateway to hell. That is where the devil resides. That is where all evil comes from. And in Jesus' day, the Valley of Hinnom also functioned as Jerusalem's garbage dump. Literally, it was where people took their trash. They threw it into the valley. Literally, it was where people took their broken things. All those things that didn't function like they were supposed to function, this is where the people of Jerusalem brought them to. And like we do today, they created a fire to deal with all that trash. There was a fire that burned 24-7 in the valley of Hinnom to consume all the things that people no longer wanted to deal with, to consume all of the broken things that no longer served their purpose. And so here's the point. God will allow us to live into whatever purpose we create for ourselves. All right, that is the freedom this love relationship requires. If our choice, even after a lifetime is perfect, pursuit from love and from God is to still continue to to reign over ourselves. If our choice is still to sit upon our own throne, to live into our manipulated nature as sole authorities over ourselves, God will grant us that choice. In all these references to hell, Jesus is not trying to give descriptors of what it will necessarily be like, but he is painting a very broad picture And he is stating that it is a realm occupied by those who do not function like God had intended them to function. Or in other words, it is the realm where the self-reigning go. And so consider the nature of self-reign for a moment. You have established your kingdom. And your heart is bent in on itself, and that is really what your self-occupation is all about. Me, 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 it's all about me. I don't care about anybody else. It's all about me. I'm going to get my way. You created your kingdom And your nature is to rule over everybody else. We talked about this a little bit how last week, how my nature as someone who has a heart bent in on itself is not just to reign over me, but it's to reign over you. And likewise, your nature as someone with a self-reigning heart is not only to reign over yourself, but to reign over me. And so we have all these people with their own little kingdoms. So when another person enters your kingdom, what is your response? Well, it's not to submit to them. It's to say, hey, get out of my kingdom. Get out of here. This is my kingdom. This is my place. You are not the king. I am the king. Get out of here. Get out of my kingdom. And what you are left with is the horrible isolation of the self-reigning heart. And the language of hell being a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth is in reference to this idea. Think of the man in solitary confinement that we talked about earlier. He's enslaved to isolation. He's enslaved to the self-made kingdom, and he's screaming, I can't do this anymore. Four months into it, I can't do this anymore. He's weeping, and he's wailing, and he's crying over the bitterness of being alone outside of relationship, knowing now that that is really what the self-reigning heart wants. 
is to be left alone. Once you're fully embedded in it, though, you realize that you hate it. You weep, you cry, and you mourn. Because please understand that at the core of every self-reigning sinful action and motive is the deep-seated desire to be left alone. As we've seen, people who experience solitary confinement for a few short months end up being a mess of constant tears and sorrow over their own existence. They weep. They cry. They mourn. But the twist, ironically, however, is that these people would have it no other way. It's the place of gnashing teeth. Now, to gnash your teeth at someone is a, is a, is a violent act of lashing out against somebody. That's what dogs do when they feel threatened. They bite and they snap and they say, get out of here. I feel threatened. I'm going to bite you. I'm going to defend you off. Get out of here. Get out of here. The twist is that you hate your existence. You're constantly mourning. You're constantly crying. You're constantly weeping. But ironically, you would have it no other way. When someone tries to come into your kingdom, your response is, get out of here. Your response is to gnash, to bite, to knit, to fight against them. Someone tries to come into your kingdom wanting a relationship, you say, get out of here. Someone tries to approach you with love, you say, get out of here. You weep and you gnash. Because at the core of every self-reigning heart, every sinful action and every motive for self-reigning priority is this deep-seated desire to be left alone. Hell is a realm where God lets you win. Hell is the realm where God lets you have your way. You will not surrender, and so you declare yourself to be king. And in this place, you suffer the horrible isolation of self-authority. Now, to me, this is far worse picture than anything Hollywood could create. I am so fearful of the people that I love in this life, that in their self-bent reality, in their self-reigning heart, and their desire to rule over themselves and not cave in, to not humble themselves, to treat other people fairly and to love and to self-sacrifice in their self-reigning heart, that they are longing for this existence. Because at the core of every self-reigning mentality and motive is this deep-seated desire to be left alone. That makes me weep for the people I love. That makes me cry for the people who do not know of the reconciliation of Jesus Christ and the redemption of Jesus Christ and His great love. Does it do the same to you guys? That really selfish people are just saying, I just want to be left alone. That's really what they're saying. And if they were to really say that with the sincerity of heart, then God would say, okay, I will let you to yourself. You will live in the self-isolation, horrible self-isolation. And so that prompts in me a need to speak truth to those I love. To enter into relationship in a loving way. To look at the people whom I love and the people I meet and say, your life is falling apart and your relationships are falling apart because of your self-reigning heart and your self-reigning mentality. Let me show you a better way. Let me show you the way of love so that you can be redeemed and reconciled, that you can find joy and purpose for which you were created in this life. We are all missionaries, my friends. We're all on mission to bring the gospel to those we love 
and all people who are selfish in nature because I fear that someone might end up with this mentality and this reality. Because at the core and the center of every self-reigning action is this deep-seated desire to be left alone. Now, everything that the Bible says about the end, whether it be hell or heaven or it's the second return of Christ or anything about the end, it's never just for the sake of contemplating some mystery that we can't figure out. It's always to prompt us to reflect on our own current situation and our own current existence. And so, my friends, where is your heart this morning? Where is your heart this morning? Let's set aside all those other people for a moment and ask yourselves, where is your heart this morning? Is your heart still bent in on itself? Does your sinful nature still control you? Are you still self-reigning? Are you still hell-bent on getting your own way? And what does that do to households? What does that do to marriages? What does that do to relationships with our coworkers and our spouses and our children? Where are you at this morning? If you do not surrender to God, then he will let you win. And if those you love do not surrender to God, then he will let them win. And so this freedom to choose is one of love's most beautiful and yet horrifying qualities. If you want to be free, my friends, from the horrible isolation of self-authority, if you want to function like God has intended you to function, if you want to be the type of person that God has created you to be as a human person functioning in this world, then my first encouragement to you is to recognize your state. That you are in a sinful position where your heart is reigning. And that deep down inside, deep down inside, you are not humble, but you are proud. Deep down inside, you really could care less for other people. Deep down inside, you really do care about yourself and only yourself. And you really are only concerned with your own improvement in this life. That you really don't care what happens to other people. You turn a blind eye to the injustices in the world. Deep down inside, you are a sinner. You do not function like God has intended you to function. That is the first, that is the beginning point. And then you need to say, God, I recognize this myself, that at the very heart of all of my desires to rule over other people, to, to assert my reign over other people, really at the very base of all of that is this deep-seated desire to be left alone. God, that scares me. And to say, God, I need you. I need your reconciliation. I need your redemption. I need the cross of Jesus Christ. And my friends, if you today begin to place your trust, or maybe you placed your trust in Jesus, if you again place your trust in Jesus Christ, he will continue to do a good work in you. He will create in you a new purpose, a reclaimed purpose. He will patch the holes. He will fix the problem. You'll live joyfully with him forever. Because the response to anybody who cries out to God in self-surrender is always, of course. I have given you my son on the cross as redemption for your sins. Of course, I love you. Of course, I forgive you. Of course, receive my restoration. 